So we're in John, 1 John chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 11 and go through verse 24. Now I want you to think about the night before, the night Jesus was arrested, uh, after the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, as it was, uh, they knew something was going to happen. They couldn't tell you what at that point, but it was in the air. There was this knowledge, this understanding that things were different, that something was going to change, something big, something terrible. Now John, the man who wrote this letter, was there with the other disciples. What would Jesus say in these, his final moments? If you were with us last spring, when we studied the Gospel of John, you know when we got to John 17. In his final moments with them, his mind was on their future unity of all things. He kept saying to them over and over again, love one another. A new command I give you, that you would love one another. And then he prayed for them in John 17. I pray, Lord, that they would be one as you and I are one. It's amazing what that reveals about God's heart, that Jesus, God in human flesh, is in the most stressful time of his life, and that's what he's thinking. When I'm gone, I want my followers to love each other. One of the things you find out when you study world religions is you can find all kinds of commonalities across the religions, but only the God of the Scriptures, the God of Jesus, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, only the God we believe in is described as a God of love. It would have been ridiculous to call Zeus a God of love. For all the commonalities between the God of Islam and the God of the Bible, there's nothing about the love of Allah for His people. And we're never told that Muslims were never told to love Allah, just to obey Him. And yet, the, the scriptures, our scriptures can tell us that God is love. He is the source of all love. Jesus, in fact, summed up the law with love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. If you do those two things, you've, you've fulfilled the entire law. When the church in Corinth was in turmoil, Paul wrote to them at the high point of his letter, his first letter to them, 1 Corinthians 13. We often hear it read at weddings. Jesus, I mean, Paul did not have weddings in mind when he wrote 1 Corinthians 13. He was trying to talk to a church where there was turmoil and disunity, and he said, for all your giftedness, for all the ways in which you can do spectacular things for the kingdom of God, if you don't have love for each other, it's all worthless. That's how important love is. Now, I could go on. Many, many more references to the importance of love. I want to give you a couple of disclaimers. Anybody who hears that and says, oh, so as long as I love other people, I can do anything I want, you're missing the point. That's not what the Scriptures teach at all. In fact, if, if you're disobedient to the commands of God, then you don't love God and you've missed the whole idea of love. Others would say, well, I don't like all this emphasis on love. I've literally in the last couple of years heard Christian teachers say, well, all this love stuff that teachers teach, that Christian preachers preach is overblown. It's our job to call out the sin in the world. Okay, yeah, we should call out sin, but the Bible says we're supposed to speak the truth in love. The motive should be love, not the desire to make ourselves look or feel morally superior to others. So how do we grow and our ability to love others. Obviously, that's something only God can do, and and, and I advise us all to pray on a regular basis, Lord, teach me to love. Help me to love you more. 
there, we even, there's an old hymn we used to sing, uh, Oh, for grace to love him more. Pray for that, but pray also for the ability to love others, to see others through his eyes. So that's important. But John tells us in John, 1 John 3, it's one of the signs that we know we're saved is that we're growing in our ability to love each other. And as we read together, we'll see certain things we can do to grow in love. The first one is don't tolerate hatred in yourself. So let's read verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, I shouldn't have to say this, but you should know that when it says brothers, it means brothers and sisters. This is the ancient way of speaking. Some of you are old enough to remember when we, we would say man and we meant mankind. It's the same thing. So he's not saying you should love uh, only male people, but men and women. Now, when I say don't tolerate hatred in yourself, we make up excuses because we set limits on our love. We set limits on the people we think we should be required to love. We're no different than that, than that law teacher who said to Jesus, and yet who is my neighbor? Remember that? Jesus is telling them, you need to love the Lord your God, you need to love your neighbor as yourself, and he says, uh, excuse me, who, who's my neighbor? Do you remember how Jesus answered? He answered by telling the story of the Good Samaritan. That was very intentional. What he was saying was, I'm going to tell you a story about the kind of person you hate most in the world, doing an act of kindness for someone just like you, so that you can see that when I say your neighbor, I mean everybody. We make up all kinds of excuses. I, I can't help it. I just don't like her. Or, uh, you know, that person just rubs me the wrong way. No one could expect me to love that person. We would never make that same excuse for another command of Scripture. You would never hear that same kind of Christian say, well, I just can't help it. I keep sleeping with people other than my spouse. I just can't help it. No, we would, if that was going on in our lives, we would know we are sinning and we would, we would confess and we would get right with God. Uh, so we need to treat our lack of love like the sin that it is. I hear people say, well, I, I, I got to love her. I don't have to like her. Which is technically true, but if you, are, if you are stewing and mulling over how much you can't stand that person, guess what? It's, you don't just not like that person. You don't love them either. Yes, love is not emotion, but if you're actively hating someone, you can't love them. See, God compares us to murderers if we hate someone else. The story of Cain is invoked in verse 12. I remember as a little boy when my mom would read me Bible stories and the story of Cain and Abel always disturbed me because like so much in the scriptures, it tells a story, it doesn't give you all the details. Sometimes it just says, this is what happened, but it doesn't tell you the why or how God felt about it. When I was a little boy, I just thought it was so unfair that both of those people brought offerings to God, but, but Abel was the only one God blessed. And I thought, well, that's, that's really unfair of God. But John explains it here. Cain 
Cain's offering wasn't accepted because of the evil in his heart. He wasn't giving out of the right motive. His heart wasn't right with God. In the same way, when you show up on Sunday morning, if you've been living in rebellion against God all week, and you show up on Sunday morning without confessing your sin, without a repentant heart, go in and just offer God your worship as if you are offering something He wants. He doesn't accept that. He wants a repentant heart, a heart that, that confesses, I'm a broken sinner and I need, I need to be forgiven. I need to be transformed. So God compares us to Cain if we're walking around despising our brother or our sister. So what do we do when we feel that way about people? Because it is literally true. I'll acknowledge you can't help how you feel about someone, but you can, you can change. You can start to evolve. And, and here's what I've learned. If you pray for someone, you can't pray for someone very long before you stop hating them. That's why so many people really don't like that command to, to pray for your enemies. We don't want to do that. If I do that, I won't hate them anymore. And I, I, that hate is, I just feel like I need that. It gives me an advantage over them. But you start praying for that person. You confess before God, Lord, I know that the way I feel about this person is wrong. Change my heart. You serve that person. You show them mercy. You show them grace. You show them kindness, even if what they're showing to you is the exact opposite. And pretty soon, your feelings about them start to change. Another way we grow in love is to practice sacrificial love regularly. In verse 16, he writes, By this we know love, that He, meaning Jesus, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's an astonishing statement. Because I think if you've grown up in a church like this one, where you're taught the gospel from the moment you can understand anything. And you know, every child in that, in that children's building right now that can understand, every child knows that Jesus died for their sins. They're told that over and over again by their parents, by the workers in that children's building. And yet we need to understand that doesn't mean that we can just live any way we want. If we want to honor Christ, we practice sacrificial love too. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross. He didn't say take up your couch cushion. He didn't say take up your remote control. He said take up your cross. So when we lay our lives down for others, it doesn't even have to be literal. Probably most of us will never have the opportunity to literally put ourselves between someone else and death. But it's when you sacrifice for somebody else. Something as simple as, I'll, I'll just tell this story. Today we were on a, an airport shuttle. It was taking us from the airport to our, uh, to our car. And uh, actually from, from our car to the airport, from the rental car to the airport. And it was packed. So all of us on the staff were sitting on one long row of chairs. And I saw Alan get up and move. And I thought, what, what's he doing? And that's when I realized there was a man who'd come in who was on a cane. And Alan saw him and realized, if I don't get up, he's going to have to stand the whole ride to the airplane, to the airport. And he just didn't have to be asked. He just got up and gave up his seat for that guy. And I thought, well, that's what I like to see. That's what we're talking about. That's, that's dying to yourself, denying yourself for someone else's sake. I have this unromantic wedding speech that I give when I give weddings. And sometimes, depends on how well I know the couple, how deep I go into it, but it goes essentially like this. 
look at this, look at this young man and this young woman. Don't they look wonderful? Don't they look great? And, and isn't it sweet? Wouldn't, isn't it wonderful what's happening here? But I want you to know this is not, this is not the height of love. These two don't even know yet what love is. Now, I, I don't usually go that far, but I know it was true of my wife and I. I know it was true of us. And I guarantee you, there's never been a man that wanted to marry a woman as bad as I did, that was more passionately in love with that woman than I was, and yet I didn't know what love was. I knew what infatuation felt like. I knew what desire felt like, but I didn't know what love was until I had to sacrifice until it cost something, then it was love. When I had to do things that I didn't want to do just for her sake, when I watched her do things for me that I knew weren't her desire, that's love. And then a baby comes along and then you really see love because there's a good long stretch where that child can't give anything back. And I remember watching my wife who I thought really loved me and I thought, man, she really loves that baby. Because look at what she's doing for this child who, who gives her nothing in return for the longest time. That's love. Love isn't love until it costs something. Don't buy into the world's version of love, which is all about emotion. Nothing wrong with that emotion, by the way. We sing songs about it and write movies about it. And we, if you've ever fallen in love with someone or if you've ever had a child and you just looked into that child's eyes and you felt this intense love for them, that's a beautiful thing and it can be celebrated but love is when you sacrifice. That's what love is. So when, whether you are married or not, whether you have kids at home or not, you can practice sacrificial love by offering yourself and laying down your rights and your privileges and your preferences and your desires for the sake of somebody else. You don't even have to call attention to it. In fact, it's better if you don't. The next way we can grow in love is practice compassion for those who can't pay you back. He says in verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You know, it just occurs to me as I read it right now, that verse doesn't get preached very often these days. And it probably should. We love to talk about right and wrong and morals and all the way the world outside those stained glass windows is so evil and wicked and we need to preserve ourselves from their ways. And yes, I've talked about that in this very study and that's true. But you can be highly moral and be as far from the heart of God as a person can be. If you can look at someone who's hurting, someone who's broken, somebody who doesn't have what they need to get by and your first thought is, yeah, it's probably because they were irresponsible. It's probably because they... They made some dumb decisions. I, I bet they spent all their money on liquor. That, that's the problem. I, I bet they gambled it all away uh, uh, online or at the racetrack. I bet, I, bet, I bet if I went to their house, they probably got a Corvette parked in, the, in front of their house. And here they are walking around in, in ratty shoes and clothes. We, we make all these excuses in our minds why we can't help someone, why we can't care about someone instead of just realizing if we can close our heart against that brother, doesn't mean we have to hand them cash every time. That's not usually the best way. But if we close our hearts against them, if we're not actively helping people who have less when we have opportunity to do so, then how can God's love abide in us? I, I will remind you that in Matthew 25, Jesus tells the story of the sheep 
and the goats. Remember, the, this, it's a parable of the day of judgment. And the sheep represent people who are going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And the goats represent those who will hear from the Lord, go away from me for I never knew you. And you know what represents the difference between those two people? It's not that the, the sheep went to a Baptist church and the goats went to some other church. It's that the sheep visited those in prison, fed those who were hungry, clothed those who were naked, gave a drink to those who were thirsty. And every time they did that, every time they did that, they were blessing the Lord. They were blessing the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hear what I'm about to say next. Theology matters, okay? Right theology matters. And so when I think about somebody like Mother Teresa, who was a Catholic nun, do I agree with her theology? No, there's a whole lot of things that she believed that I passionately don't believe in. But she did believe that Jesus Christ died for her sins, and that was the only way to be saved. She did offer herself in ministry to his name, and so I believe I'll see her in heaven someday when I die. And so what I say to you is, even though there's a whole lot of people I know that had, in my opinion, better and more biblical theology, I don't know that there's many people who've lived a more Christ-like life, because everything she did was, I just want to love Jesus. I just want to show, I, I just want to bless Jesus. And every time she saw a, a, a leper on the streets of, of Mumbai or, or a, an untouchable who was dying in, in, in just inches from death, she saw the face of Christ and said, I'm going to help them. Even if it's not going to save their life, I'm going to help them because when I do, I'm blessing Jesus. You can't get more Christian than that. Practice compassion for those who can't pay you back and you'll learn how to love. The next one, he says, essentially, choose to love in action. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. He's not saying that we shouldn't say that we love people. He's not saying that words don't matter because we know from the scriptures words matter very much. And we're told to tell people the gospel and that consists of words. He's saying, don't let it just be words because love isn't just a feeling. Love is a choice. Love is a decision. Love is a verb. Love is what we do, not just what we feel. A lot of us remember when even most of our non-Christian neighbors and friends, classmates, co-workers, had a basic understanding of who the God of the Bible was. They knew that God had a son named Jesus. They knew that Jesus came and did something on earth. They didn't know the whole story. They didn't know the good news. All we had to do was just kind of fill in the gaps and say, yes, you're right. There is a God in heaven. Yes, there are the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Yes, there are lots of other commandments that you and I never, never are able to follow. And we can't ever uh, make ourselves right. You're right about all of that. What you don't know is that Jesus came into the world not just to tell us those commands, but to die for our sins. And so uh, that's how you and I were trained to share the gospel was to tell people the good news, to tell people, here's what you don't know about the Bible. And they'd go, really? That sounds a whole lot better than what I've always believed. And many of them came to Christ. And during those, those years from about 1945 to uh, sometime in the early 90s, that was, that was the, the high point of Christian evangelism in this nation because we had that Christian consensus in our nation 
We, all we had to do was just give people more information, and a lot of them believed. We're in a different day now where people don't have that base of knowledge and they don't have that respect for the scriptures. And so for many of them, you can quote scripture until your face is blue and it won't make a difference. They don't hear it. They don't care. They might say, well, that's interesting for you, but it doesn't mean anything to me because I don't believe in your God. And one of the things that's frustrating for us, because I'm describing some of your own family and friends, is that no matter how skilled our arguments are, we can go home, do our homework, and come up with a great presentation that just shuts down their objections, but we can't argue them into the family of God. But what we can do that the world won't do is love them. We can love them in addition to telling them the truth. The difference between now and back then is oftentimes we have to love them first in order to earn enough credibility to say, now let me tell you why I love you this way. And that's how we save. We have to choose to love in action. And then the last thing, this last section, I, I, I entitled it, We're Out of Excuses. So let me just read the passage and then I'll tell you what I mean. John writes, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever, we, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this, he, by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. So 1 John is about knowing that you're saved, knowing uh, that you belong to Christ. And part of knowing that you're His is that you're growing in love for Him and for those around you. And if you feel like, I, I don't feel like I'm growing that way, we've talked about some things to do to increase that love for others and that love for God. But some folks want to stand up and say, maybe I'm just not wired that way. I've met Christians before who've said to me, I'm not a tender-hearted person. I don't have the gift of mercy. I've heard people say that before. That's not my spiritual gift. I don't have the gift of mercy. I've heard people say, you don't understand. I'm the kind of person, I don't give pats on the back. I give kicks in the rear end. And sometimes we need that. But what I want to say to them is, wait until the day your life falls apart. On that day, you're going to hope that God is a God who gives pats on the back and hugs and who showers down blessings. You're going to want a God of love and not just righteousness. You're going to want a, a church full of people who don't just speak the truth, they speak the truth in love. You're going to want a church full of people who will be flesh and blood representatives of the comforting love of God who will weep alongside you and not just tell you, okay, it's time to quit weeping. It's time to snap out of it. It's time to get, get, up, get up off your seat and get back into the game. Sometimes you need people who will be with you in the darkness and that means love and not just righteousness. Some of these folks who love to brag about how tough and hardened they are, someday they're going to wish they had invested in the love of God. Others bring up excuses like, you can't expect me to love somebody who has been so evil and wicked to me. And I always want to be careful when I talk about something like this because I know that I've had a good life and I had two good parents that treated me nothing but lovingly. 
and, and I married a good woman who's treated me nothing but better than I deserve. And I've had good friends and good mentors all my life. I've been around some mean people, but most of the time I wasn't their target. So I know there are people in any room that have suffered at the hands of other people in ways that I haven't. So I never want to make it sound like I'm downplaying or minimizing the pain somebody else has caused to you. But whenever we say, I can't love somebody who did that to me, I keep coming back to, yeah, but look at what we did to Jesus. And he still loved us. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying it's necessary. It's not just possible, it's necessary. So here's, there are two statements in the passage I just read that I think should take away all of our excuses when he says, God is greater than our heart. We act like the emotions we feel are reality. And yet God is able to change those emotions. God is able to change our heart. He's able to transform us. And I don't want to point any fingers because I'm not God. But there are some people who simply don't want to be changed. I, I referred to this a little earlier, but sometimes, sometimes our hatred, our anger is the last thing we want to let go of because we feel like it gives us an edge. If we love somebody, they could hurt us again. If we love someone, then that means we won't get revenge. If we love people, they might see us as soft. Yes, it is risky to love. I, I agree. But it is worth that risk. Jesus took that risk for us. He can change our heart because He is greater than our heart. Never rest on this idea that, well, you know, I, I, can't, I, I guess I can't love that person because I just I can't forgive them. You can do it. And you need to do it. And you'll be glad you did it but you have to take that step of obedience. And the other the other excuse, the other line that takes away our excuse is he says, "We know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us." Don't hear what I just said as if I'm saying you can do it. The truth is you can't, but the Holy Spirit inside of you can. You have the spirit of God dwelling inside of you if you are a child of God. And the Spirit is in you to give you power to do God's will. Doesn't mean you'll wake up tomorrow and all the, all the hatred and anger and bitterness and resentment is gone, but it means that as you obey Him, you grow stronger. You grow stronger. It's sort of like, it's sort of like the difference between uh, trying to get up and, and run a marathon. You can't do it. You can't just get out of bed and run a marathon, but if you work, if you train, if you practice, if you eat right, if you, if you develop yourself, God has given us spiritually the capacity to run and run and run in obedience to Him. But it doesn't mean it comes naturally to us. We have to follow Him in obedience. And at first it may just be running a couple hundred feet, but eventually we'll be running and running for days and chasing after Him. The Spirit of God gives us the ability to do whatever He's called us to do. And most of the time, it won't be to make the sun stand still in the sky or to walk on water. It'll be the power to love somebody who you and I would not love if it wasn't for Jesus. In fact, that's where I want to leave this. Okay? Good, good spiritual test for you, even if it's a little self-indulgent. Ask yourself the question, who is there in my life that I am actively loving 
who I wouldn't love if it wasn't for Jesus? That's a good test to ask yourself. Because every one of us should be able to tell that story. Maybe not that that person has been mean to us, but that person represents everything I don't like. But I'm able to show them love. I'm able to be kind to them and pray for them. I'm able to uh, refrain from talking bad about them when I'm not around them. That's a real test right there. I'm choosing to love that person because of Jesus, not because of anything about them. And when you do that, that's when you realize, oh, that's, that's a tiny percentage of what it takes for God to love me. And that ought to help a whole lot. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so grateful that we serve a God of love and not just a God of righteousness. If you were all righteous but not loving, we'd all be lost. And if you were all loving and not righteous, then there'd be no end to the sin in this world. So we're glad you are who you are. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would cleanse us of the bitterness that we feel. Some of us, we have ample reason to be angry and upset. And yet, Lord, you've called us to forgive. You've called us to love. You've called us to pray for those who despise us and who make our lives miserable. Help us to obey that, even if we don't feel like it. I pray that we would uh, love especially the brothers and sisters of the church. I thank you for the love I see whenever I see this group get together. And yet I know, Lord, that we could do better. And I pray that we would, that we would bear one another's burdens in love. We'd lift each other up in prayer. We would show the world what it means to truly love, just as you've shown us in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.